Good morning. I'm looking for a word for my pink salt following, like the beehive or arm cherries. So if you guys have any ideas, throw them out there. I know, big dreams one day. But today, and whatever day I recorded this episode, I have COVID. So I don't sound too hot, but the episode is loaded with particulars and particularlies. And you guys, I need to recycle my words. <laughs> I should make a reel of all the times I say particular or particularly, and I'm sure we would all be amused. Anyway, this is the last episode with David and I sorting through faith and religion. And just so you all know, up front, so no one is upset or takes anything out of context, neither of us hates Oprah. We're just hating on a guru culture that has put her and others on a pedestal. Also, don't listen to me about taxes. I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time, let alone when it comes to tax write-offs, okay? Just be careful who you set as the ideal looking back at you through the mirror of self-reflection. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. After editing, I'm now wondering, is a purpose fulfilled no longer a purpose? If you have an answer, let me know. Happy Monday, everyone. Talent is cheaper than table salt. What separates the talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work. Upon learning this quote, table salt became my symbolic reminder to keep up the hard work. This developed into pink salt, the hard work that goes into successful relationships. The idea for this podcast was born of my innate curiosity about intimacy and relationships, and I wanted to include the spectrum of relationships intimate, but also familial, professional, even individual relationships to finances, food, faith, you name it. The relationships that take up space in our lives are endless, yet many of us feel societally imposed taboo when those relationships get difficult and maybe need some elbow grease. Pink Salt reminds us to have grace for the people and things around us when things don't go as easily as we picture. I'm your host, Jacqueline Chantel. Let's get to work. Listen, subscribe, and leave a review. I do want to introduce your paper in episode four, oh, <laughs> which sure. I probably should have done in episode one, even at least like in my introduction or in the notes and the show notes, but I didn't. So we are, what brought us here ultimately is your paper titled God Essay on the Matter of Truth, an essay of questions, conversations, and truths of the I am. And since we're on week four, and I feel like we haven't talked about everything that we originally set out to talk about. Um, we are at the topic of evolution, which is a big part of the paper. It's not like it's, um, you know, the majority of the paper by any means, but it is like a fair bit of one of the arguments against atheism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we want to talk about that. 
Um, there were some things about uh, the sex slave industry that we didn't get to last week that we can talk about. Um, it actually ties yeah, in perfectly so, to evolution. Yes. So why don't we start there? There are some questions that I have specifically, but I think we can get to them. If you want to introduce your paper in general, if you want to introduce evolution in terms of how it relates to um, the sex slave industry. Yes. Take it away. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I, you know, I'm so thankful God brought us together at a random Christmas party to, for me to be able to talk about my paper and stuff like that. Um, that paper is something which I swear I'll get around to actually adding to it. I haven't had a chance to add since the original copy of it, but it was my small project originally for my little brother's Christmas present um, because he just wanted a compilation of all of the conversations I had had with different atheists and agnostics. And so my younger brother had asked for that for Christmas. And so originally it was actually just a gift for him. Um, but I really do enjoy it. I enjoy writing about the ways that science, physics, the notion of morality and philosophy come together to point more towards God rather than the modern notion that science is somehow divorced from uh, religious belief. And so that was, along with trying to make a little Christmas present for my uh, brother, I tried to make sure that I can get a nice project going probably for the end of grad school, I think. And so that's what I tried to make that as, as a focus of my paper. Um, evolution is something that I find really interesting. Uh, I think it's probably one of the strongest or at least most frequently brought up arguments in discussions between atheists and Christians for reasons that I think I can kind of understand. I, I think I can understand exactly why the situation uh, regarding evolution uh, seems to be at odds with Christian doctrine, uh, but I don't think that's the case. And I think that there's a great deal of scholars who also hold that there is nothing in particular about evolution either in the, in the possibility that it's true or false, which would disprove order in the nature of God's creation. Uh, and so that's definitely one of the reasons that I took a lot of the stuff I did in undergrad for evolutionary uh, biology, molecular biology, and tried to apply that with a biochemical twist to the discussion of the existence of God. Um, no, it's, it's tough because evolution can be tackled in so many different ways. But I think what I'll do first is I'll walk through a worldview where evolution, materialistic evolution, as it's called, uh, let's assume that it's true. Um, of course, evolu uh, macroevolution is a theory uh, that is always going to be called a theory because none of us are ever, you know, living long enough to actually see the process of macroevolution. Uh, and it is so built. Oh, one yes. question there. Why is evolution, specifically macroevolution, a theory and God or faith is not a theory? Oh, yes, yes. Um, so a theory, and, and technically I think that depending on how you define a theoretical concept, you can state that faith is in some semblance or sense a theory. Uh, 
Although I guess some scientists would state that faith is not a theory because they believe that theories have some testability, just not any complete provability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess in the case of uh, Christian doctrine, some state that faith cannot be tested and therefore cannot be considered a theory. Uh, that, that's a bit of a matter hmm, of semantics. That's interesting. I feel like there's so many stories in the Bible where faith is tested. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Christian Christian faith is very rarely ever blind, right? Like faith is a thing that's often tested. People's belief in God is tested. Their understanding of God's nature and their willingness to trust that he who was still is, is tested mm-hmm. often. Um, and so... You're right, actually. You bring up a good point. I guess that goes against the modern consensus about how religion is a blind faith thing. Because, uh, you know, astute point in scripture, faith is a very tested thing. And it's also kind of commanded to be tested in the New Testament, um, specifically for the sake of safety and wisdom. Paul says, you know, test, test the spirits, um, w- which is to say anything that you hear or come to know, test it. Test it to see if there's wisdom, truth in it, lest you be led astray by some doctrine that is not true or correct. And so uh, the case of macroevolution as a theory stays as a theory because we don't have the ability to travel back in time billions and billions of years to actually see this process. Um, It relies on a large amount of presuppositions, uh, which is just to say that there are certain assumptions that must be made before pursuing the theory of evolution to see if it's correct. Uh, For instance, uh, one presupposition is often all life has a single origin point in macroevolution, which is a weird presupposition to start out with, to state that all life must have a single uh, ancestral, like common ancestral background. Because if life can go from a bunch of non-living things to living things out of nowhere at random, then why is it necessary that life could not have done that from a bunch of different origins? But for evolutionary data to function, they have to kind of just assume that there's like one origin point, And from that origin point, all life kind of developed. Um, that, that's not logically sound, but that is the presupposition that's usually followed. Uh, to be completely honest, though, if life can come from non-living things to living things out of nowhere at any given point over enough time, then we'd see a lot more origin points than just one. Uh, mm-hmm. That being said, evolution materialistic evolution that means evolution with no semblance of uh you know supernatural or immaterial control right uh evolution which assumes that there is no god there is no such thing as spirit there's no such thing as a controller simply just constant laws of mathematics that dictate the way that evolution happens uh leads to a very interesting system Number one, uh, it leads to a system in which it supposes that DNA and RNA, um, RNA is often believed to be the precursor to DNA, even though in modern cells, it's actually the thing that comes after DNA, which is a very weird switch. But it is believed that RNA and DNA are these molecules that just so happen to have directional information, uh, directional information for self-replicating or information for organ organelles, the little organ uh, uh, packets inside of cells, uh, or direction and instruction for machinery to help make more DNA and RNA. 
This is strange because the notion of a molecule having instruction is a weird thought, given the randomness of the system proposed by evolution, right? Like, oh, DNA and RNA just so happen to have instruction for a thing that they do. Um, not even like just normal chemical processes, they self-replicate. And then also they all of a sudden stop self-replicating and start replicating to make systems of cells, a cell wall, a plasma membrane, mitochondria, these really complex cellular organelles. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've talked so much about the brain being like a computer. And then even the word system and sort of, uh, insinuates that there is some sort of information or direction. So to who this is a surprise is sort of like, well, have you been paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's well said. Um, it, it is, it is weird, right? I, I think the average person understands the idea that if we see uh, a blueprint, a perfectly drawn out, extremely complex blueprint of a castle that is not yet a thing, we would assume there to be an architect behind the blueprint because the blueprint is so wildly complex for a very specific thing that doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. In the exact same way, DNA and RNA are logically, in an evolutionary sense, logically believed to be the origin of where life eventually developed. The issue is that, again, I would ask, why are there instructions for organ systems that don't exist yet? Why does DNA have instructions for the machinery to be produced in order to make more DNA more easily? Why are there instructions for cell walls when a cell is not a thing yet? Why are all these instructions in RNA and DNA if there's nothing that it would logically, according to ran the randomness of evolution, be instructed, instruct, you know, instructed towards or instructed to. Mm -hmm. um, it assumes instruction, machinery, and the ability to complete the instruction with, but it assumes no goal for those three things. Um, so I think the very presence of DNA and RNA as being molecules that carry information. And again, that also is very confusing. What the heck does it mean for a molecule to carry information, to carry instruction? In well, I think you can, you can, an easy way, or the way that it's kind of like making sense in my head is that if you take the human body, for instance, like people know that they have lungs, they know that they have a liver, they know that they have a heart. Most people don't actually know how they work, but they know that they do and they are made up of cells and there is, they weren't always those cells. They were instructed to become those cells. Yeah, exactly. The weird thing is that instruction usually requires something to read that instruction, right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of with a blueprint example, uh, the blueprint is set out with a very complex design, but it also has to be read. And same with DNA and RNA. Uh, DNA and RNA, in order for their instruction to turn into proteins, eventually the building block of a lot of things, amino acids to proteins, it requires something to read those instructions, uh, which of course, modern cells do have uh, little genetic machinery things, molecules that the DNA would have to turn into to then go back to the DNA and help it to read the DNA itself. And then it, now it can read itself in order to make new 
copies of itself, which mm-hmm. then is confusing because it's like, all right, well, then how did it read itself to make the machinery to read itself in the first place? Right. Um, and so it, it becomes this strange system that's powerfully designed and instructed since it has instructions. Uh, I, I try to explain but why this, I say this specifically oh. applies both to micro and macro evolution. Yes, yes. Because yes. um, it's just the biology of it. Exactly, exactly. Of course, the, the most confusing part is that the original hop from abio, or uh, science now holds that there's abiogenesis, which means that technically the very first time that life appeared, it appeared from non-living things. But this is really confusing because then we have to understand, okay, how can a totally random system with no technical order go from a completely, like, no, no living, random, jumbled up, you know, stew of materials into a thing that is instructed and moving towards a goal and living? Um, and the fact that a lot of scientists know what those early Earth conditions must have been. Uh, prominently presents it and tests it out in the old Miller Urey apparatus, which is the the goal part is confusing to me because it it seems like we do have a, it it seems like there is a goal because there, there you've talked about uh, there being like the perfect amount of charge that happened in order for earth to be created and the living things on earth to not only be created, but then survive. Mm -hmm. So with any difference in those charge in those charges, there wouldn't be, it wouldn't have worked out the way that it has. So it seems like with that sort of uh, with the electric charge that is added to the cells that didn't have the direction yet that then came the direction. And because it's almost like evolution is the goal, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to but... like evolve into the living thing and then to continue to survive would be exactly, the exactly. The, the weird thing is that the moment <clears throat> we state, cause that's actually what's not Sam Harris. That is what Richard Dawkins uh, states, right? That all we are are machines with a goal to replicate DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, we're nothing more. We're just, hunks of you know flesh robots trying to get more dna produced which is why we have kids and all this stuff so is that how it connects so it seems like that except the issue is that richard dawkins sadly uses instructed language to talk about what he calls a non like a non-instructed totally random system Uh, To state that the goal of living and evolution and DNA is to make more DNA is to state that there is a thing that DNA is heading towards. But the issue is that means that DNA has instruction and a goal. But then you'd have to ask why a random inanimate molecule has instruction and a goal when it's a random inanimate molecule. And so the issue is that uh, even Richard Dawkins in some of his books, right, he, he states that the only purpose in life, which, of course, that's the issue, he already failed. You, you either have to say there is no purpose or there is a purpose. And he says there is no purpose, but which, you know, that, that's a contradiction. Um, mm-hmm. We're just 
machinery to try to get more DNA produced, except DNA controls us, but it's also not a personal thing. It's just a random inanimate molecule. So it becomes really confusing. Um, to what do see you the think about purpose? Just yes. on, a, on honestly, on a personal individual level with conscience, mm. with conscious, with a conscious, with a conscience. conscience, conscience. Yes. You're right the first time. Um, yeah. Because that's a big question for me right now. And it's almost like once the purpose of surviving has been fulfilled, then all you have is what's inside your head. And it's different from everybody else who's also trying to find their purpose. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on how to come to that. Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. I'd love to. This is actually, uh, what's interesting is this technically would have been the end of the evolutionary talk because the issue with an evolutionary framework is that the only goal, and again, uh, evolution also assumes there's not really any such thing as like consciousness or a conscience. It's just an illusion, right? Um, the only goal, all you're doing is just reacting to the chemicals inside of you. You're just going to do what you're going to do. And that's all you're going to do. Uh, the notion of having dreams is just a chemical mutation. There's something wrong with humans. You know, we're foolish because this mutation happened. I, I strongly reject that and everything that it asserts and everything that it stands for. Um, because uh, besides going beyond the notion of simple nihilism, right? That life is meaningless. It also asserts a unique kind of meaninglessness that not only is life meaningless, but any attempt to pursue a thing that you consider to be purposeful is meaningless, even if you think it is meaningful. Hmm. I think that's wrong. I think that's incorrect. And I think that's illogical. What I will assert is that human purpose, which of course I, I do believe that the primary purpose of human existence is to be in relationship with God, um, to, to know him. And I mean, know him personally, not intellectually, but like know him. Um, and to be in relationship with him. And from that relationship with God, purpose flows out further. Uh, scripture shows that people, you know, in relationship with God, don't just kind of sit there and never move for the rest of their lives, right? Like God works through them to bring about his good, his goodness, his plans, his purposes. Uh, the person who, I love the passages in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where it talks about the gifts of the spirit, uh, where it talks about how some people are called to be a teacher. Some are called to affirm, you know, uh, exhortation is the word he uses, but some are called to affirm others and, uh, and, and to build them up and to encourage them to keep persisting. Some are generous with their time or their money. Some are meant to go to other nations and to help build hospitals and to help, you know, spread the good word of the Lord, to give other people hope and purpose and meaning in relationship with the Lord. Um, some are just very powerful in their faith. Like there's a lot of gifts of the spirit. It's more than just tongues. <laughs> uh, although a lot of churches would not focus on anything else besides tongues, but there's a lot of gifts. And so what I love is that in relationship with God, in that wonderful, inexplicable peace that I feel just knowing that God is good and that even in the difficult times, God holds me in his arms forever and ever, never, ever letting me go. I walk in my life with the knowledge and a complete understanding of the greatness of God, such that my next steps, even if I don't know what they'll be, even if I step into a field that maybe isn't the best for me, 
God still has me. Um, and also because of that, it gives me freedom. It gives me freedom to use the wisdom the, you know, that God has given me to try this field. And if this field doesn't work out, hey, that's okay. God still has me. I'll try this field. This field kind of worked out. I'm getting, you know. So I think the beauty of living in relationship with God is that there's a new type of freedom you get in trying to, because you know that God has you, you can try a different field or a different path that's new to you. And if it works out, that's great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. God will guide you. Um, and so purpose is a difficult thing. It's actually really interesting. I was going through some more Michaela and Jordan Peterson <laughs> podcasts because that's what I do when I'm at the gym because I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, I was listening to an interesting analysis of the modern loss of purpose. Um, predominantly in Western and European uh, cultures, not to get too much into the nature of, of, of privilege. I think that's probably for a different topic, a different time, but rather to focus on the nature of human existence in a state when humans are past that point of just barely surviving, right? Often without clear instruction or direction for the next logical steps. Because again, according to evolution, like, you know, you just have to survive to the point where you can have kids, kids that are fit enough to also survive, right? When you get past that point, uh, which the world asserts is just the simple fact, which I reject, but that's okay. Um, you're left in a place where you are kind of stuffed in this existential crisis um, in, in, a, in a non-Christian worldview. You're stuck in a place in an existential crisis where you're trying to figure out, I've survived. Now no. all I can do is, yeah, what's next? You know, it's yeah. like Plainton and SpongeBob when he says, I don't know, I never thought I'd get this far. <laughs> like, he, Well, it's, you know, it's making me think like, people find purpose in raising a family or they find purpose in a business that they've built or in leading a group of people or, you know, just in work in general or in philanthropy or whatever it is that you find purpose in. But I think that, and maybe I've heard this in one of those podcasts, but it makes me think that like this word purpose is a little bit of a trendy word right now. There you go. People are trying to find purpose in everything that they do. And it kind of wipes out this idea that you're supposed to have struggles or, or suffering in the words of Jordan Peterson or whatever. But it's like, well, if you don't have any of them, then where do you start even looking for purpose? And how do you know when you've found it that's amazing i'm so glad you said that because that is actually fundamental to not just the american struggle for an understanding of purpose and direction um i think also a lot of modern contextual uses of the word purpose mistake it for direction um so i I agree with you there actually as well i think people use the word purpose because it's kind of trendy it's it's you know oh i got my uh, whatever random award society says I'm supposed to, or I hit the age that society says I'm supposed to now. What? Uh, I think you're totally correct in that if your purpose is something like raising a family and that is a good goal and that is a valiant and noble thing to pursue. But if that is someone's primary purpose, 
then that's unhealthy because eventually they'll raise their family. And then that's the end. Your kids go off. You're stuck in empty nest syndrome as it's modern, modern day, you know, usage. Uh, someone wants to build a business and they make this business their purpose, like their, their top purpose, the thing that will define who they are uh, based off the thing they do. Uh, which, of course, Christianity states that you're not defined by exactly what you do, but who you are, because who you are in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of rejects the whole works-based identity, works-based salvation, and says your faith changes who you are. You are now in Christ. So it's not a matter of exactly what you're doing in this life, although you should do what the Lord says is right, and, and love, peace, faithfulness, generosity, self-control, all that. But more so first and foremost who you are and who you are in christ uh and so you're correct i actually agree completely if people are rooted in all of these little things they do and that is the extent of their purpose then their purpose is wildly limited either in its temporality because you know uh, if your business fails too bad um or hey your business did great but now you're getting to the point where you can't run it anymore and so now you got to pass it off to somebody else. Well, you said that I'm correct, but I asked a question. So I'm like, but you still haven't told me how I know that it's my purpose. Oh, sure, sure. Sorry. <laughs> how yeah, do I know? Of... <laughs> uh, the issue is that any of these things you do cannot legitimately be your primary purpose. Actually, what I would say is your, my, my answer to your question is that none of these, what, how much money you make, Uh, who you end up getting married to, how many kids you have, that cannot be your purpose. Because if you make that your purpose, then you will be left in a place of existential dread and the muck and mire of internal thoughts that, you know, you're just kind of ruminating on, right? So instead, the way to know what your purpose is, is to know the purpose, which is perfect and forever right? Um, The most logical pursuit of a purpose is that purpose, which is perfect. Uh, To use as much alliteration in one sentence as possible. Uh, And so I I would state that purpose, because it is a really trendy word. Um, And in a group of, in in a modern generation, which has seemingly no sense of direction or purpose or objective values for life or themselves, it makes sense that people don't have any semblance of purpose or how do I know what I'm supposed to do is another thing. Or how do I know what my purpose is? I would say your primary purpose is to pursue a relationship with God. And I know that I have to explain exactly why that's confusing. Cause I know why that's confusing. Um, why is it that somehow when I start pursuing a relationship with God, right. To truly understand who Christ is and, the fact that he saved me forever um, and that, you know, once you're saved, that's, that's a seal on you and you're saved and secured. How does that change anything about my life that I know that, you know, that I believe that, but it's actually the purpose that is true and free and it's true freedom because the reason that people, you know, like yourself uh, and literally billions of people across the world ask like, I don't know what my purpose is. I just got this degree. I don't know what my purpose is. I just wrote this beautiful dissertation. I don't know what my purpose is. I know how to write a really long essay, but I don't know what my purpose is. Uh, The issue is that, again, they're rooting themselves 
in this false postmodern idea that your your purpose is tied to the things that you do or the things you want to do. Your and direction. If you don't may have be in those, the- then your purpose is no longer there. Which exactly. Yeah. And then and, just- and everything is has the possibility of being lost. Exactly. Literally any any like temporary or transient purpose mm-hmm. that people purpose that people will try to build their lives on. Right. Like like uh, Elon Musk. <clears throat> Elon Musk crazy successful by the standards of this world, right? Billions and billions, billions of dollars, super intelligent. Uh, name is just known everywhere. Uh, very famous and even a bit of a meme, right? Like people really like Elon Musk and he's considered to be extremely intelligent. And yet, if his purpose is his wealth, sorry, but yeah, there's a possibility that all that goes away or the moment you die, you can't take your wealth with you. Sorry about that. As Jesus says. Well, I guess that's why I feel like especially in the in the example that you gave about parenthood yeah you could raise a family and then you have an empty nest syndrome but maybe instead of an empty nest and like the more healthy perspective of that is a fulfilled purpose and instead of thinking okay well then now I can go die (laughs) it's more of how do I how do I um, continue that purpose in helping other people parent or, you know, in the case of Elon Musk, like he's been incredible with business and uh, investing and, and how do you create that in a way that continues to go? How do you build a legacy out of your purpose so that just because the thing is gone, that allowed you to realize your purpose doesn't mean that you that the purpose itself is has left you sure i i think that the the issue is this actually just pushes the issue a little bit further down the line uh it's kind of just put a little blanket over the fire because Mm -hmm. after this happens let's say that this person in the empty nest syndrome case because i think that's a nice pretty common one uh after they have raised their family they're like i want to go and babysit or i want to go help parents have better instructions on how to take care of their kids the issue is all you've done is you've just extended a purpose that's only bound to this life and a purpose that's only bound to this life or one which fluctuates because also let's say this person wants to then make a business of babysitting sometimes you won't really be able to babysit, you know, or maybe all the people that you had as clients get sick or, and you can't see them, or maybe a global pandemic happens. <laughs> that, that would never happen. Right. <laughs> or, or maybe uh, all of the time you spent writing that book about parenting on your, you know, like uh, you got it on a bunch of shelves, but not many people bought it or some people bought it, but then they stopped. The issue is it kind of just pushes the question of purpose a little bit further down the line, but it doesn't actually address the fact that, again, there is an end to it. Mm -hmm. I think what people need to do is they need to set their, their eyes 
on eternity. Like, why limit your purpose to the few things you could theoretically do in this life? Because also, of course, all of us, uh, you know, we're alive, but I don't know. Like, tomorrow, I might be a youngin', but tomorrow I could just, like, get hit by a car and die. I mean, I uh, did say legacy. Yeah, I but legacy legacy doesn't really help the individual because they're dead, right? So, so what is what is eternity? How does setting your eyes on eternity help you fulfill or recognize your purpose? Yeah, well, well, the I would state in the same way that you stated earlier that purpose is a bit of a misnomer and it's a more popular modern culture term. I think people misinterpret goals with purpose. Um, I think a lot of people have temporary goals or long-term goals, but to state mm-hmm. that a goal is your purpose is uh, incorrect. I think it's it, it kind of misses a few philosophical points there. Uh, focusing and making your purpose to know God and to have a personal relationship with him and to love him, that is a purpose that is eternal. You are literally with God in heaven forever, right? Like that is a perfect mm-hmm eternal state of complete perfection um i think all those things on earth are goals and i i don't even want to say they're bad goals because the scripture is very clear that you should do those things um in order to help as scripture says over and over in the old testament and new testament like help the widowed the orphaned the poor um if you turn your back on the poor crying out for help then yourself crying to the lord he shall not hear you because you have your, you have turned your your ears away from the poor asking for help right like those are noble things and the lord calls us to do stuff that are good and right on this you know in this world that is true um but those are goals and those are things you do but your purpose should be far more than the things you do it should be a statement of who you are And the only identity which you can have that is beyond yourself is in, is, you know, in Christ. In God, yeah. Because the issue is that, um, and I I understand why, especially like the last two generations have been so focused on trying to pursue their own types of purposes and their own identities through their businesses and their education and, you know, whatnot. Uh, But the issue is if you're, desire is to then ignore what you do and say i want to define and make my purpose just a statement of who i am if your statement of who you are is literally just in who you are then that's either amorphous which is fine because that's how humans are sometimes but it's amorphous it kind of changes or uh, more predominantly and more significantly so it's transient Again, when you die, then that that's the end of your purpose because your purpose was rooted in who you are in who you are mm-hmm. rather than uh, yourself being purposed and rooted in who you are in Christ, Christ being eternal and therefore partaking in the eternality of loving him and being with him forever. Okay, so you said that the conversation of purpose happens at the end of evolution. So let's backtrack again, because I lied again. (laughs) (laughs) And we are going to talk about why sex trafficking is your favorite topic and specifically why it is connected or how it connects to evolution. 
course, of course. So I guess answer the former first. Yes, yes. Or the, um, the, the latter first. The latter? Okay, okay. Uh, so, so how is sex trafficking uh, related to evolution? So evolution has two major components. Those two major components are to survive unto the point of reproductive ability and then to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Hopefully as much as we you started can. to get there. Yeah, yeah. Right. So like, those are the two goals. It kind of stops after that, right? Because then it's like, all right, I, I hope one of these two parents make sure the kids are fit enough to survive into adulthood until they can have babies and whatever. Uh, those are the two goals. So the issue is that the means to the sexual fitness goal, and again, in a, in a uh, fully materialistic evolution environment, right, where there's no such thing as objective morality, good and evil are just kind of like illusions, concepts, you know, just like false logical leaps humans make according to evolution uh then any behavior you do which increases either your physical fitness or you can get to the point where you're like you know stronger and able to get more food and 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 bonk more other people on the head to get them away from you uh or anything that increases your ability to have more children and to have or to have more sex to have more children to just take more mates so that you can have more kids Anything you do is logically justifiable in an evolutionary context. Hmm. Um, if someone uh, seems like they're trying to, you know, uh, be intimidating from all the way across the street, and you're like, oh, this person's trying to be intimidating, I should kill them because then I could take their resources and then increase my physical fitness and even perhaps become more attractive to females because they see that I'm physically fit, right? That leads to like a lot of justifications for a lot of tribalism and stuff like that. But then on the case of sexual fitness, and here's where it really comes in. Sexual fitness is probably in some cases, some people will say it's more important than physical fitness, but they're kind of tied together. Sexual fitness is just, all right, I have to have as many kids as I can. I have to increase the total amount of my genetic representation in the next generation by just having as many kids as I can, as many mates as I can that, you know, that'll be sustainable. So what's what the issue is, is that in the modern development of not modern at all, this is ancient in the ancient and yet still uh, current tradition of sex trafficking, uh, sex slavery and all the developments from that. This is a technically a logical outpouring of a solely materialistic evolutionary system. People have it in their minds because of apparently like evolutionary wiring. I don't think this is true, but this is the evolutionary position to just increase their sexual stimulation and sexual activity as much as they can um, to the point of uh, either being more powerful, stronger, um, or just having more sex, even if in the modern sexual like sex trafficking system, they also usually like either do forced abortions on these nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, I guess more so like 12 and 13-year-olds beyond when they uh, get uh, pregnant more more easily, more likely. And they just force these girls to have abortions or they put them to sleep and hit them until the uh, abortion happens. Uh, These evil developments take what you would think would evolve in an evolutionary system, you know, we're like, oh, I take this person as like a sex captive in sex trafficking, and then I have sex with them, and then I wait for them to produce an offspring. 
That's what you would expect in evolution, probably. Instead, humans have sex trafficking in which they take this person, they use them for personal self-pleasure, and then specifically do so with the desire to avoid actually having children. Humans defy evolutionary logic, evolutionary behavior all the time because of how wicked humans are, right? Like a lot of animals toy around with their food, you know, after it's dead sometimes. But it's very rare to ever see like an animal truly like torturing something in like a torture room. Humans during war will just torture people and torture people some of them for information other people just because they want to like world war ii what happened of course from nazis to uh the jewish people and the gypsies and um, minorities and the handy and anybody with a handicap or any type of disability and then also the japanese to the chinese during world war ii in which they tortured the chinese so badly that one of the leaders of the nazi party had to fly down and say hey you need to chill um and you know <laughs> you know it's bad when one of the nazi leaders has to tell you to chill with your torture methods um because they were just doing like fun daily decapitation contest in public where they forced the children to watch as they decapitated their dads you know for like cutting competitions humans do these things that don't really make total sense in an evolutionary context because it's like there's no necessary benefit to this but then some evolutionary scientists will say actually this makes sense uh, sex trafficking developed because people when they have increased serotonin, you know, they feel better. And so they can be more productive throughout their day. So when you have sex with this random person, um, you know, this random kid or, or random girl that's been drugged up, you have a serotonin boost, your brain feels better after it. And so this is actually a very logical development from evolution. You know, this is expected, which is disgusting, but. Yeah, because I'm also just like, what about, just masturbation <laughs> yeah yeah right you would, think, you would think but the weird thing is about humans um actually that's a really excellent point because the weird thing about humans is humans are unique in that anything you might expect to potentially see in like other species of animals right because like sometimes monkeys do that um very rarely but like you know sometimes um humans have this thing where they kind of do things for the sake of pleasure even when it's not pleasurable, like uh, in, people with significant sex or, or porn addictions. And there's really good programs out there to help people going through that. Um, so, you know, anybody who, who's listening, there are like really good programs for that because I think society has to understand that all forms of addictions are addictions that, you know, that's a mental health crisis and America has to find a way to actually deal with that instead of just saying, just keep doing it. I'm like, no, this is hurting people. Sex addictions destroy people personally and even you know, in relationships. Anyways, I think what's so interesting is that humans don't just want the little serotonin boost. Humans kind of get into these weird cycles uh, and spirals where they say, oh, well, masturbation is not enough. I need something that's more, right? And so maybe they'll move on to a type of pornography where they treat these people on the screen as like sex objects for their own personal stimulation. And they're like, ah, oh, but that that genre isn't enough. So they go into a more niche genre, right? Of something. Yeah. You talked about that. Uh, and I, I kind of took that as like specifically, well, you know, the Jordan Peterson five 
characteristics and one of them is novelty seeking mm-hmm. and that kind of felt to me as like a person who would be novelty seeking constantly once something is no longer stimulating the serotonin um but I wondered as like a general thing outside of necessarily um, because what you're talking about is sort of like up leveling what you can handle in terms of specifically the porn that you watch but that made me think and I sort of brought this up last week um you know, there are intimate relationships that have decided that these are the boundaries in which we can play, um, where they've sort of consented to be objectified or consented for there to be this like playroom or thing that is stimulating to their partner because they both enjoy it or because their partner enjoys it. And so that made me wonder, I mean, I guess I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Of course, of course. I actually do remember um, researching a bit about the psychology behind that uh, in college, because it's a very interesting neurological process. Um, So I I think, of course, Jordan Peterson brings up the very like nature of pornography as like the, the very nature of pornography and more strange sex cases to be the inherent base of serotonin uh, addiction and novelty seeking, right? Which is really common throughout the world right now, sadly. But in those instances, I'll be honest, like the scripture does state that if someone is married to another person, they're in this covenantal marriage situation, then they have like a lot more freedom in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. that's true that is in scripture you know like you, you you do have more freedom as long as you're honest and consenting to it um and I think some... honest and consensual are very important exactly because like right? if you're consenting to something dishonestly then there's a situation where a lot of uh anger and resentment can start to seed exactly exactly which is is also technically why scripture is very clear like uh especially in song of solomon um and other parts where it says uh, daughters of Jerusalem do not do not wake love until it's time right uh, is what the woman in the poem is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem because uh, I, I don't think I'm too cynical in saying this but people often find themselves trusting people that they probably shouldn't have and marriage is this beautiful thing that God gives that allows for people to be in a state where they can actually know for a fact uh, or know f- with a far greater degree of certainty that this is a person that they know intellectually and personally, um, and that they trust for this very unique and important thing called sex, right? And so uh, scripture is very clear about not just like waiting until marriage for sex, but also like why you should, because there's tons of people, um, and, I, and my heart goes out to them because I get it, Number one, because of our modern culture, but number two, because people never have a chance to talk about these things. People get in relationships and they, you know, they'll have sex with somebody and then this person just kind of betrays their trust or leaves them soon after. uh, Or you feel like you you just feel empty after whatever thing has transpired and and passed. And then you're like, man, why did I even give them that? Right. Um, the beauty of scripture is it puts like a safeguard saying, 
it is in marriage that you can have a greater degree of uh, safety and certainty about this person who you're with, that you can trust them, um, that they'll uh, understand your needs and your desires, but also your limits. Um, scripture is also very clear. You have to be honest about that. You really have to. Scripture says the marriage bed is undefiled. So if, if, if in a marriage relationship, someone is not clear or they do something that goes against the other person's wishes in bed, that is like a serious, really big issue. I wish modern culture would talk more about that. I know scripture does, which is great, but modern culture doesn't realize that rape does happen in marriages too. Um, and awful cases of, you know, sexual abuse or whatever else like that's the thing and thankfully scripture addresses that i just wish modern culture would um and so i in the case of sex play um and the different forms of it i think the there are certain types of things in which somebody is demeaned or objectified to the point where while i understand that they state that like okay this is a thing that they find sexually stimulating I'd question, where does this come from? Mm-hmm. Um, not to become like a psychologist or something. You, you don't want to like psychoanalyze friends or whatever. You shouldn't. Um, but, but as a no, legitimate- No, but like sex is definitely a manifestation of extreme- Extreme like, path- like Psychological design. pathways. That's exactly right. It's true. Because um, sex is an extremely powerful, physically and chemically and neurologically, it's an extremely powerful act. Um, as God intended, of course. But- you, you do have to ask like, okay, where, where does this desire come from, right? Uh, if someone says that they are warning for anybody who is perhaps not too keen on the different topics here, just a quick warning. But if someone says they're into like race play, I'm like, okay, let's just talk about maybe like, wh- wh- why do these two people say that they like that? Or why does this one person like to say that like, oh, treat me as if I'm like a slave. There's this play called slave play (laughs) um and it's it's about um it's interesting it's kind of like a double entendre because now that i think about it because it's slave play like as in sex play but like slave sex play uh but it's also slave play um and so it it's about three different couples in a sex therapy weekend or a couples therapy weekend. And all of them are mixed race. And one of them is like a, a black woman and a white man. The next one is a white woman and a black man. And the other one is a white man and a black man. Mm-hmm. And at the, the first act of the play is the three of that, like each of their three vignettes of them acting out this like extravagant sexual fantasy and you don't know to know that it's a sexual fantasy until the second act when they all come back together in their therapy session to talk about in a group therapy session to talk about what happened when they were acting out these fantasies and so the reason that I bring that up and the reason that it's particularly interesting to what you just said is that a lot of times we don't even know our own psychology. So it's hard for us to be in a relationship sexually knowing how to ask for what we want or even why we're asking for it if we do know what to ask for. Exactly. You know, that's that's a really fair point. Um, and, and I think, again, because um, I guess this is stepping beyond the, the boundaries of what I'd uh, 
normally think about or discuss. But in the case of a healthy psychological self-analysis, I think that's just kind of empty and missing in most circles of living, uh, mm. especially in postmodern places like America yeah. and Europe and Canada. Uh, people don't know, especially in, I think, a, a secular context, people don't know how to self-reflect because they don't know what standard they should be reflecting towards when they reflect on themselves, right? Uh, the, is the issue of empty self-reflection, or no, soul self-reflection, like you're just reflecting on only yourself and nothing else, it's not really fruitful because you don't know what thing you probably should be trying to go towards, right? Um, of course, in like a Christian worldview, you have a, a standard uh, that you're trying to pursue. And so self-reflection is actually extremely effective because it's not just self-reflection, it's self-reflection towards something. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to go into a mirror and just look at my reflection, but not know what I'm actually trying, like, oh, I, I want to get my hair this way, or I want to shave my face this a certain way. If I'm just standing and looking in the mirror, not actually having like a goal, a specific thing that I ought to be or how I ought to look or what is correct for an interview for a job or something, then me staring at, at, at myself in the mirror doesn't really do anything because I don't have any goal to pursue. And so I actually get why in, a, in, a, in modern America and more so in a secular context and even in a Christian context, um, uh, people have difficulty doing self-reflection because they're just doing self-reflection. Uh, it's hard to look, to do self-reflection with a goal to change if you don't know what you want to change towards. I would also say that in addition to it sort of being your own self-reflection, the thing that is reflecting to you oftentimes is an idea or a person with things that you want or a person that you've projected your wants onto. And so the thing that is being reflected back to you in your self-reflection is not, it's either not the whole story or it's just not the truth or it's just not possible. Well <laughs> said. Or it's materialistic. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Actually, that's, that's a good point. That's a, uh... That is sadly a result of, I know Jordan Peterson talks about this all the time, but I know that that's a common result of the modern guru culture, specifically with people mm. like Oprah, right? Where you just got to think about the kind of job and money you want. And then you just, and you got to think that that's you, that's who you are. Uh, I mean, I hear you on that, but I actually was thinking of it even in terms of like, you brought up shame. Mm like we were talking about sex psychology you brought up shame and like the things that these the the reasons that thing, these things are popping up in people's psychology is quite possibly like this thing that they were told that they needed to be or that they never wanted to be that they were being pushed from that is then being reflected back to them and so there's this need or want to sort of cover it up or be something else to protect themselves. That's true. That's true. I think it's because people. But also guru culture. It's sure. true. It's true. You know, because <laughs> the issue is it's, it's giving you like really sweet affirmations, but literally giving you no instruction, right? Like you just got to 
think better. You know, you're going to have more money. You're going to, tomorrow's going to be a better day. And like, what I appreciate about Jesus is that Jesus is very clear and honest. He says, worry not for tomorrow, for um, each day's worries will, will be sufficient for that day. What Jesus says mm-hmm. is, don't worry about tomorrow because you got enough worries to deal with today. You know, yeah. um, he, he, he doesn't lie and say like, tomorrow's going to be super easy. What he says is, I know it's tough. I know things are tough, especially because he was speaking to a crowd of predominantly, you know, like himself, uh, uh, people who were likely poor. Um, and, you know, they weren't usually the more rich people. Um, and so, of course, their lives are going to be tough. Most of his or a bunch of his followers got tortured to death in awful, excruciating ways. Uh, so, like, yeah, it's it's an important thing to understand. Um, the, I will the, also say in those in the guru culture of like think this be positive if you can deduce why you're thinking the way that you do in the first place and then realize that that's not based in your current reality or that's or you learned that somewhere that wasn't you know in alignment with god or you know your particular religion or personal goals at this moment then it is a lot easier to sort of dissolve and then you understand now i can think positively in that way because the reason that i wasn't isn't actually a reason that is relevant to my life anymore but there's so much that has created those thoughts in the first place that we don't recognize consciously yeah no that's that's really that's true it's actually why i am hoping to see a modern deconstructionist movement in atheist and agnostic circles uh for anybody in the audience who doesn't know there's uh in certain circles there's deconstruction uh in religious circles right there's people who were raised in a certain environment and then this process of deconstruction is trying to look at the foundational assertions of the belief to see if it's um, something they understand, uh, if it's logically consistent. Uh, I actually am surprised at how in true self-reflection, I think you can actually see this happening in atheist and agnostic uh, culture as well. People are doing an honest self-reflection of atheist and agnostic systems of value, purpose, morality, truth, uh the you know true like origins of those qualities of human nature and they're deconstructing those presuppositions that they thought were standard and concrete uh like you know just yeah there's no purpose in life so just kind of do whatever you currently feel like doing until you don't feel like doing it anymore right or or whatever else those things start to deconstruct and people realize the uh, incredible applicative uh, value of seeing the nature of like objective moral truth, objective truth, objective value, objective reasoning, uh, logic, and all this stuff. And so it, it's interesting to kind of see, and I think it's slowly happening, or maybe I'm more pe- uh, optimistic in that. I, I, I'm hoping more people are realizing that most of like the modern guru culture, especially with Oprah, it's just like, imagine the irony of uh this person talking to you about how things are going to get better 
when it's like, yeah, you she did have a tough uh, childhood growing up, but she also is like a multi-billionaire right now. And so to assert that that's just how it's going to be for each of the people listening to her, I'm sorry, that's just not fair. That's not reasonable. That's not to be expected. Um, she's giving them advice, but with that much money, might as well just give them the cash too and <laughs> help them out a little bit. You know, it, it's just these kind of like empty assertions without much follow-up, you know? Um, it gives people the little bit of sugar they need to kind of get through the day. They're like, oh, that was sweet. That was nice. But then it quickly fades away and it's like, how do I actually, like, what do I do? You know, mm -hmm. what's the purpose of me getting this million dollars that I want to get by the age of 40 or 45 or something? Like, what's what's the purpose? And there's right. no purpose because it just becomes goal after goal after goal. Well, and in the case of Oprah, I mean, I know we keep going back to her, but anybody in that position, particularly somebody who has that much influence in media, it's like media is hypnotic yeah, and it is meant to bring in views. It's capitalistic. So any, any person that she brings on or any uh, advice that she's giving is, has a purpose of continuing to bring in that viewership and maintain that influence that she that her company has and that's the same with any one of those companies so it's almost like the thing that we were talking about earlier in terms of purpose being um pro prolific sure almost is like not necessarily uh altruistic it, not in the slightest bring it full circle from the first episode <laughs> well said you're right i mean that's another thing like a lot of these current gurus and these different <laughs> groups uh they speak well and they know how to tickle people's ears right like they know how to make people feel good but they're not actually really doing any significant uh, thing just for the good of others right like mm -hmm. you don't you don't have um any modern people doing what jesus did right like putting uh, uh getting tortured to death and put on the cross for the sake of everyone who would believe like mm -hmm. you don't see any altruism in the modern notions of or no, i don't say any you very 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 rarely see true altruism in these high places of power especially in media in media they use incredible psychology to make you uh, come back for more or they'll even use sound cues and color cues to make you think oh that makes me feel happy when i see it sometimes right and it's just you find that's yourself something I, I want more of that's something if i get then i'll be like that and, and that's not to say like especially in oprah's case that when she started off there was probably a massive sense of uh you know wanting to give back to that community but at a certain point in anyone's case on that level at what point does it become maintaining where you are in that hierarchy versus actually still wanting to give back because and not to sit not to get into like taxes or anything like that <laughs> but that's not what this podcast is about necessarily right now but also at that level you could say that they're giving back because they care, but also they're giving back to like not have to pay so much. That's right. That's right. <laughs> get I mean, that tax break. 
you're just true. Like it, you're <laughs> right, right? Uh, and I don't think we're being cynical and saying that. I think that's just a realistic analysis of what reality is. Like that's well said, and I totally agree with you. Um, the, the funny thing is that also in those cases where people just stay with as many resources as they have, as many shiny objects and money as they have, that's like also a very logical development from evolution. In evolution, you want to have as much resource power as you can, right? That way you can have as much physical fitness, eventually sexual fitness, uh, but usually just like as much physical fitness, as much land as you can that other people don't have, as much money and as much shiny, shiny rocks and whatever shiny things humans like. You got all of it. That way you're the one who other people have to come to. And then you have more physical fitness and also more sexual fitness than you could provide. It seems more. so paradoxical because it seems like the bigger you get, the more people see you, the more likely you are to be attacked for the things that you have. Exactly. Exactly. Which I guess you see in some alpha cultures and certain animals, but it is really weird in humans. Mm-hmm. In humans- and it's so funny because like people who actually have money or the way that I was brought up is like hide your money in all of these different places then nobody suspects you of having money and then you're not like attacked for your money it's like some people wear a sign that says I have money and quite frankly a lot of those times that's not actually the case that's also true that's it's really good signaling to make yourself Mm -hmm. look better yeah so it's it's sadly like all of this is pretty logical developments from evolution, right? Like mm-hmm. human greed makes total sense in an evolutionary context. You keep as many resources for yourself. That way you're the one with the greatest fitness. Um, sex trafficking, you uh, can either define it as making total sense in an evolutionary context um, because it increases your serotonin. I'd say it actually doesn't explain human behavior. Evolution doesn't explain human behavior enough to account for how messed up humans are um, because humans will do stuff without any true like lasting benefit to themselves or to their family, just because they kind of just want it Um, uh, from sex trafficking to like, uh, you know, uh, abuse because it's like, I'm physically fit. So I'm showing someone that I'm physically fit. And by showing that, then they'll recognize me as stronger, having greater fitness. And thus they'll know that any children that I have, are going to be stronger, right? Uh, to, to Any twenty-something-year-old like Christians listening, David has a fantastic jawline. Uh, hey yo, it ain't that good, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I, I try to cut it up a little bit, you know. Just, uh, <laughs> but it's it's it, it is interesting. Uh, evolution cannot logically account for uh, some of humanity's worst aspects. And it also definitely cannot account for some of humanity's best aspects. Those being rare, I'll admit. But for the, in the cases where someone, because in evolution, if someone is born with a, a type of disability or they're differently abled, right? Or they, um, uh, uh, they have something about them which would prevent them from uh, reproducing with the opposite, opposite sex. Just anything that's fundamental to evolution, sexual reproduction, mm-hmm. fitness, whatever. Um, in a lot of cases, you would just leave that uh, dis- disabled individual behind if mm-hmm. you realize that they cannot keep up with the pack, uh, with yourselves. It takes too much energy, according to evolution, to uh, give to them when you can give to the other children that have a higher chance of survival and sexual reproduction. 
Um, and you see that all the time in animal species, you know, uh, animals are like, ah, it's just not really worth it. I got these two kids. This one won't catch up. Oh, well, you know, it'll become bird food in a couple of days and then worm food after that. Uh, humans, although they should technically, according to like a just evolutionary model with no, nothing else, they should act like that. Like that should be a part of human behavior and human moral systems. It's like if someone has any type of uh, you know, like anything that would reduce their fitness, right? Anything that pre that prevents them from either behaviorally or physically prevents them from uh, having sex with uh, someone of the opposite sex and producing a child, or they have a type of di uh, disability. Uh, humans should be like all the other animals and, and say, oh, that takes too much energy and just like, you know, uh, isolate them, kick them out of society, um, leave them to fend for themselves. Which they humans have. What? <laughs> they kind of have. Yeah, and at times... Outside of the family unit, they pretty much have. It, it's true, it's true. Except that there are a surprising amount of uh, institutions in which people are trying to care for people mm -hmm. with uh, disabilities and trying to... Uh, even in like a lot of ancient times, people would try uh, to help someone, uh, even if they weren't related to them at all. Because in, in an evolutionary context, you technically would only have altruistic behavior in theory, and this is really hard to prove in any type of testing, but in theory, if it was a family member that you're closely related to, then maybe you would consider mm. going out of your way to waste time and energy of your own fitness to like help them. Um, if you thought that there was some sort of benefit they can offer to you. Uh, but in human but if concept, it were your purpose. Exactly right. Or at least a goal until you get your serotonin high because that person is like, oh, I did better. And you're like, good. Yeah. I feel good now. Uh, this is but fulfillment. Exactly right. But in the case of something like, let's say, Christianity, um, where there's the man who's born blind and Jesus is in town and the uh, disciples say, oh, no, they're all kind of like talking to, to, uh, together and they're saying, Lord, what, what sin did uh, this man's parents do for him to be born blind? All right. That's what the disciples are saying. And Jesus says there is no sin on his part, nor uh, nor by his parents, but simply that he might be bring glory to God. Right. Uh, Jesus clearly stating that people, no matter what disability or, or state of living that they're in, uh, have a a purpose that is, you know, the glory of God and being in right relationship with him. And then Jesus, after <clears throat> after this man does ask for healing, heals this man. And so he can finally do the things he actually wants to do even though his parents very quickly disown that guy, uh, which kind of stinks because they're like, uh, we don't want to get in trouble with the people asking questions about how you got healed. So we're just going to say, you're old enough to take care of yourself. Mm. We don't have to ask questions. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like Jesus is, is very clear the same way, of course, that in the old Testament, when Moses says, Lord, you can't send me to, you can't send me to speak to these people. You know, mm. uh, I, these, I, the, these are the questions of faith being enough of uh you know the, whether god is going to be enough of the protection that you need from what's actually in front of you exactly exactly right uh because people have their eyes focused on things that just aren't as important moses is like you can't send me to these people lord because i have a problem with my mouth right the actual translation is that you know he stutters um mm -hmm. and moses even kind of points to God and says, even now in your presence, I still have this problem. 
Um, well, especially course, in your presence. <laughs> exactly right. Well, he's, he's, he's like, uh, you know, he's kind of terrified. I would be too, of course. Um, but God says, like, uh, who made the blind, the mute, or who made the deaf, the mute, the sing, or the blind? Did not I? Um, and the Lord says that uh, objectively and confidently because the Lord values even these people who He made, who who are differently abled, even though society will throw them out. The Lord says, did not I make them? You know, uh, the, like that is a beautiful statement of the value God places in, in people. And society will sometimes say, oh, well, why did God make them blind? Isn't that just an awful curse? That's like, a, 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 I'd, I'd rather die. Um, which, of course, a lot of blind and deaf people take great offense to that. Um, to state like, hey, my life is worth living just because I see, uh, don't see or don't hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my life is still worth living. And God clearly states that because he, he made them um people are very stuck on disability as if it's this death you know this death contract or death wish when it's just not uh and the beauty is that god even in exodus like the second you know oldest book in, in, in the scripture uh states the value that he places in people even if they have a disability under an evolutionary system people with disability would logically be thrown out. But what God says is that he has made them and in them and with them, he desires relationship and he desires to be with them. And he will use the deaf or the mute or the seeing or the blind. He will use anybody who is willing for his purposes Um, And and I think that is a powerful statement of purpose because with God, in God, knowing God and knowing the love God has for you, it doesn't matter if you can't see because you are seen by him who sees. El Roy is one of the names that God or one of the titles God has. El Roy, the the Lord who sees me in in my weakness when when I'm alone. Uh, You know, the Lord is my provider. Um, Yola Rafa, like that just means the Lord, our provider. God is there for those who are alone. And he is there for those who feel weak and for those who feel that nobody cares. He is there. And so that is where purpose is. And that's something evolution could never, ever provide. Well, may we all be seen and our purpose. Um, That's a beautiful place to end this four weeks of (laughs) incredible conversation. I actually thought, why don't we close this last episode of the four-part series out in a prayer from you? I would love that. Thank you so much. That'd be excellent. God, I thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. I thank you for Jacqueline and for her wonderful, incredible heart. I thank you for the way that you have made her and for the way that you have blessed her and for the way that you will continue to bless her and lead her. I thank you for all the people listening, that they would know that you love them, Lord, and that you desire a true personal relationship with them and that they would come to accept the love you have for them and to see how great you are. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Pink Salt Podcast. 
Pink Salt is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jacqueline Chantel. Sound production by Dev Daly and graphics by Alyssa Donaldson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. See you next week.